Welcome to the Murthy podcast series designed to guide foreign nationals, their families, and employers through the changes occurring under the Trump administration. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information in this podcast is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, we introduce you to the attorneys in this podcast. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President, CEO, and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference to discuss the issue of whether H-1B eligibility applies for computer programmers. We will obviously discuss in detail the recent memo that was issued by the USCIS dated March 31st, 2017, but very conveniently released on Monday, the 3rd of April, uh, the very first day that the cap season cases could be accepted by the USCIS. I have with me on my panel Kevin Andrews, my esteemed and learned colleague, who is also the coordinating attorney uh, of the non-immigrant slash H-1B department at the Murthy Law Firm. And I just confirmed that he has been with the firm 10 years this June. Congratulations, Kevin. Thank you. And welcome to all of you. So really, the, the part that was really upsetting for me about the memo was the timing of the notice, where it was too late for companies to either change the job titles or tweak it in a manner that they could not file them as H-1B computer programmers. Uh, but maybe as you know, business analysts, software analysts, computer, um, you know, some other job rather than as a programmer, maybe even programmer analyst. But at any rate, at this time there is no time because the LCAs were taking seven to days working days and longer. Um, the memo starts off by clearly stating that it is rescinding or canceling out, revoking a prior memo from December 22nd of 2000, which is almost 17 years earlier, um, or uh, yeah, just under, under 17 years earlier, which clearly stated that a computer programmer occupation would generally qualify as a specialty occupation as that term was defined by law. So it's interesting. You would think after 17 years that things would actually be even clearer and better, but in, alas, that's not the way the USCI has decided to go with this. So, Kevin, exactly what does the memo outline and say? Yeah, thanks, Sheila. So this memo, this 2017 memo, starts off, it really just picks apart the tw uh, the 2000 memo about computer programmers, and then we kind of just see what's left. So the memo starts off by saying that Back in the year 2000, the computer programmer occupation may have been uh, uh, an H-1B job, but that job, or I'm sorry, a specialty occupation, but that job is maybe in a state of transition. So 17 years later, perhaps the minimum requirements for this kind of occupation is not a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study. You know, the real focus, though, I think of this memo is not to say that the job has evolved or changed over the years, but it's that the 2000 memo itself was flawed to begin with. What, what they're saying in this 2017 memo is that the 2000 memo that said that, as you mentioned, Sheila, the computer programmer occupational classification would generally qualify as a specialty occupation job. Well, what USCIS now is saying is that they didn't consider back then that many people 
in this occupation have bachelor's degrees that were not in a specific field of study related to computer programmers like computer science or information technology. Perhaps they had degrees in other fields of study. They also noted that the 2000 memo did not recognize the fact that computer programmer, many computer programmers had only associate's degrees. So these are just the little nitpicky things that was the, uh, the, the pretext for the new policy. The new policy being that uh, an entry-level computer programmer is not they're not going to generally qualify that as a specialty occupation as as a as a rule of thumb there's perhaps even a presumption against saying that a computer programmer at least an entry level one we can talk about what that means in a little bit uh, but an entry level computer programmer probably is not going to be defined as you know what they call specialty occupation under this new memo so does that mean that a more senior level computer programmer could potentially qualify Maybe. I think it's important. What do we mean by senior or entry level? And before we get into that, I think it's important. You know, yeah, I think the computer program or occupational classification is still usable. It can still be used, but with, with some warnings uh, warnings on it. So I think to parse that out, we really have to make sure we're, under, we're talking about the same thing. When an H-1B job is, uh, it's a specialty occupation that's defined in, in the law, it's defined by statute, and the, what the statute says is that a specialty occupation is a job that requires theoretical and practical application of a body of specialized knowledge and the attainment of a bachelor's degree in a specific specialty is the normal minimum requirement for entry into the position. So all those legalese words basically, is this the kind of job that's you know advanced, professional, sophisticated enough that normally requires a bachelor's degree for entry into the position? Um, I think the critical question here when, it's, when we're talking about this memo is what does normal mean uh, or what is normally required when we're talking about computer programmers? Okay, so it's really important to understand that this memo, the Mar March 31st, 2017 memo, that's dated March 31st, does not actually clearly state that a computer programmer cannot or will not qualify for the H-1B specialty occupation status. Instead, the message seems to be that the USCIS examiner should not automatically assume that a computer program will automatically or generally qualify as an H-1B specialty occupation, as was explicitly mentioned in the 2000 USCIS memo. Rather, the examiner must review the requirements for the particular H-1B petition and determine whether the particular job duties, the position, the level of seniority, all of those factors that Kevin and I just discussed actually meets the requirements of satisfying this legal definition of being a specialty occupation. Um, so I guess the from an employer's point of view, from an employee's point of view, from anybody listening to this teleconference or podcast, one of the questions they're going to ask is, how can I strengthen my case if I am filing for a computer programmer? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we get this a lot in our H-1B department. Uh, a lot of companies and, and employees are, are understandably concerned. I think there's a few things to really focus on and think about 
when we're looking at the computer programmer's occupational classification. The first thing that I think is really critical, we've been tossing around this, this phrase occupational classification a little loosely here, but what we're talking about is something called a SOC code or standard occupational classification code. For those of you that, are, that know what an LCA is and maybe have seen it, uh, this is the code that defines, you know, this is what kind of job this is. This, is, this w- is what helps us define what the prevailing wage would be for that particular work location. And the thing about these SOC codes, these occupational classification codes, there are some uh, fields of study or there are some fields and some industries that have a little bit more flexibility. So generally what I remind my clients is that you know 19th and 20th century jobs tend to be fixed into one SOC code. Attorney, there's one SOC code for attorney. But uh, accountant, physician, there's only one SOC code for those type of 19th and 20th century jobs. But when you're talking about 21st century jobs, IT, biotech, there are a lot of different codes that may be interrelated. So coming back to what this means for computer programmers, maybe the job really is just essentially you're just writing code all day long, then it's really a computer programmer. But what if it's an IT occupation where programming is kind of an aspect or, or incident to the job that, you know, everybody increasingly in these kind of sophisticated jobs need to know how to write some code, but it's not the core function. So you can look at the different occupational classifications. You can Google, uh, it's called onetonline.org. I, I look at it together with my clients and we figure it out together. I think looking at it by yourself without the other information isn't going to be super helpful, but it's a start. It's a good framework for a good starting point to think about these occupational classifications more mindfully. Um, the, the second thing I would think about is, hey, we've looked at those SOC codes. This is core programming, This is, but it's a sophisticated programmer. How do we make this work, Kevin? And what I uh, remind my clients is to consider the actual minimum requirements for the position and then the corresponding wage level that shows up on the LCA. This was mentioned specifically in the memo. And I think one practical kind of takeaway, you know, uh, to remember from walking away from this podcast today is if I'm filing a a programmer analyst position and using a level one wage, this is high risk. If I increase the wage level to a higher level, two, three, or four is where it maxes out, um, then there's a much better chance that it can be you can overcome the presumption that the computer programmer occupation in this particular case is uh, not a specialty occupation. So uh, those are some things that I would think about. And then other things that I would think about is quite often these issues come up in the context of like a request for evidence or a notice of intent to revoke, maybe if they're going to take a very aggressive approach. And think about how to respond to those issues proactively before you file the case instead of uh, reactively. So when it comes to, you know, Programmer, uh, the computer programmer position, is it, does it normally require a bachelor's degree? What does normal mean? There are other factors to consider. What are the industry standards? What are your competitors asking for in the job market? What, what are, the, what are your, high, your prior employment practices? Do you normally require a bachelor's degree and three years of experience or whatever it is? And this is consistent with your prior employment practices. And then one last thing I would just throw out there to consider, even before an RFE is issued, is whether you can obtain expert testimony. There's, you know, academic experts out there who work in academia and the computer science fields and their department heads at some uh, universities out there who can attest, you know, with their expertise and say, you know, based on my uh, knowledge and expertise, I I can attest that these job duties, this job is a job that normally requires a bachelor's in a specific field of study. And even with this new memo, uh, Sheila, USCIS can't ignore that. Yeah, there is a lot going on. I think gone are the days when we could think that an H-1B petition was something somebody could type up 
in a couple of hours and do a somewhat sloppy job by copying and pasting the itinerary and doing stuff because we still see that when we get a lot of notices of intentions to deny our RFEs, we see some really sloppy work that is done either by other law firms and lawyers, unfortunately, members of my esteemed colleagues who are not behaving as esteemed colleagues, or sometimes in-house by companies um, by a paralegal or some assistant doing a job without completely appreciating and understanding how to really prepare a well-documented and well-analyzed and well-thought-out legal argument like a legal brief. And the, some of the cases that we've done, I mean, it amazes and astounds me the level of attention to detail and where you really need to focus in responding to or preparing a package so rock solid that the foundation is so strong that there's no way that the government can look at it other than to approve it. That's the goal, obviously. Uh, it's obviously important to realize that it is a little too early to make sure to find out what specific impact this March 31st memo will have on the processing of H-1 petitions, but obviously it doesn't bode well for anybody that filed an H-1B, especially a cap subject case, on that night to reach the USCIS on Monday, April 3rd morning. Another memo, which was actually dated Monday, April 3rd, the USCIS said that they would take a more targeted approach with their site visits to workplaces of H-1B employers, particularly if the employers are both H-1B dependent employers and or if they're consulting companies, which is a majority of the H-1 petitions are filed by those who are doing it for consulting company positions. On the same day, April 3rd, you had the U.S. Department of Justice that issued a press release that cautioned employers petitioning for H-1 visas not to discriminate against U.S. workers. It sounds ludicrous and ridiculous that the government needs to do that because every employer knows that you cannot discriminate against an H-1B worker, against a U.S. worker, to favor an H-1B worker. The, but the very fact that the, the administration feels that they need to be issuing such a memo or such a press release tells you that... Um, there is a new sheriff in town, that there is a new administration with the campaign promise and reality that they would focus on protecting the U.S. worker. And although that all along has always been the policy of the government, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice, the focus on increasing enforcement, on site visits, on focusing on H-1B dependent employers, consulting companies really has gone up a few notches where the pressure is that we are going to invest in hiring more enforcement agents to go look under the hood very carefully to see if anything is not done properly. And so as employers, as businesses, as individuals going through the process, you need to realize that this is something that is going to be looked at under the microscope. The government has clearly indicated their, indica their intention to increase enforcement and compliance. Therefore, if you're an H-1B employer, you really need to go and review your current H-1B filing practices, your documentation, your I-9s, your public access files, and make sure that all of that is kept as carefully and clearly as possible. 
Again, it's not an opportunity to panic. It's not an opportunity to say what's the point and throw, throw in the towel. But it is an opportunity to dot your I's, cross your T's, where we all need to be much more careful and realize that there is a different environment and climate that we need to focus on. Kevin, did you want to add anything? One other thing I wanted to mention along the lines of compliance and having protocols for your public access files and I-9s is also making sure you have a protocol and a procedure for what to do when and if a site visit happens. Very often, a lot of employers just know who's the point of contact, who's going to greet whom. Um, if it's an email that's coming in, who's re- responsible for responding to that? I think just setting up and thinking about these things before they happen is a good uh, practice because increasingly a lot, of, and I just kind of test and ask people from time to time, have you ever gotten a site visit? I'm getting more yeses than, than noes. And maybe they're not physical site visits, but they are the emails. And a lot of the time it, they say, well, we would have responded sooner if we had a clear procedure in place to know who was going to be responsible for what. And again, many of the ones where we are seeing the enforcement and the site visits, if you've got your ducks in a row, your paperwork's in a row, it should not impact your ability to continue to file H-1 petitions, continue to stay in business, and continue to actually focus and be very successful because those who are not doing it right will lose their uh, ability to process petitions. And so the strong, the hardy, the ones who are playing by the rules will continue to thrive and be successful even in this very tough climate. So since this was meant to be a very short, quick overview to educate, enlighten, and guide you as employers and employees, we thank you very much for joining us for today's short teleconference, um, which will also be used as a podcast on Murti.com website. Thank you and have a wonderful day.